Welcome, everyone, to episode 209 of Some Like It's Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're kicking off the season of Tar with our first review of a film this fall with Tar in the title. That is the Todd Field-directed, Kate Blanchett-starring drama, Tar. Before we get to that, though, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, happy Halloween. A couple weeks ago, we talked about award season being upon us already. Some people are calling this the season of the witch. But what we failed to acknowledge is that tar season is actually what is truly upon us. How are you feeling about this special time of year? What if there was a tar, Scott? What if there was <laughs> what a tar? If there wasn't? I think we found out what there what what, it, what there was if there was a tar. Actually. We did. We finally yeah. finally answered the question. Um, yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Um, happy to ring in the season of tar. It's actually Halloween when we're recording this, so happy Halloween. Um, I'm not sure that this was the scariest film that we probably could have reviewed, but. Um, scary in that it, in its in its reality as opposed to terrifier too it, was a scary yeah, it, unreality it, in how it mirrors our current circumstances perhaps yes um yeah. that that might be a fair assumption but no we didn't we didn't review terrifier too um i don't i don't know whether i regret that or not um i have no regrets seems to yeah i know you don't but <laughs> um but anyway yeah we're kicking things off um I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but Scott, sure. it feels nice to be watching real movies again. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I mean, I saw this uh, like almost a month ago now. It's been quite it's quite quite mm-hmm. a minute since I saw this film. And I've watched some other films since the New York Film Festival, um, including the, you know, the raging Disney new Disney classic Hocus Pocus 2 um, and the absolutely, uh, let's say, um, ambitious rosalind the uh romeo and Juliet. oh you did watch that i didn't know uh real real gems you of, haven't of watched films. paul feig's the school of good not. and evil yet scott i couldn't even tell you the last time i opened netflix seriously <laughs> i like i i'm trying to think off the top of my head what's the what is the last thing i watched on netflix i genuinely don't know could be yeah. could have been could have been arcane last year last last fall i don't think i've watched anything on wow. Netflix this year that's, i think i okay to be fair i watched downton abbey on netflix um earlier this year but it was also on peacock but i watched it on netflix because um because i could i could virtually what is it like the teleparty like watch it with a watch it with Uh karen so that's the reason i was watching it on netflix otherwise i would have just watched it on peacock yeah i was gonna say you probably shouldn't admit that on something that's going out into the world hey if we if we had a teleparty like service on peacock i would have been using it for that but okay you hear that execs Oh no! The, I mean, don't worry. You need to look a little bit lower down in the company when you're, you know, creatively planning your te- your your product forward. roadmap. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh-huh. Definitely not the uh, most important feature yet yet to be uh, integrated into the Peacock platform, though. So we'll see if it comes anytime soon. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, I literally couldn't tell you the last time I watched something on Netflix. So I have not gotten to the Paul Feig class, like instant classic, uh, the school for is it good and evil? What is it? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. Which is crazy. Charlize Theron's in that film, isn't it? Isn't she in that film? Oh yeah, there's a few people Jesus who are in Christ. That. Two and a half hours. Two no and a half hours. People just there's no well, Scott, we'll talk about we're gonna talk about film runtimes later in the episode in this in part two. But uh, you know, if I'm gonna sit down for a 150 pluser, it's not gonna be a Paul Feig Netflix yeah. sorcery film. Yeah, I, I'm begging you people, like all of you who are considering watching it, you you deserve better. I don't know who you are, <laughs> I but I beg you, like, don't. Please maintain your self-respect. Do not watch that entire thing. Yeah, watch. I mean, watch Hocus Pocus too. Like every other 
family in the United States. It's the most watched streaming movie uh, of all time. Okay, now that was not where I was going with that. But well, I was yes. making a joke about how Hocus Pocus <laughs> 2 is literally, it is the most watched streaming movie ever, according to Nielsen. That's surpassing any Netflix movie. Pretty crazy stuff. So suck it, Extraction. <laughs> yeah. Eat shit. <laughs> the Gray Man. Yeah, exactly. I, speaking speaking of Hocus Pocus 2, I saw I was I was walking back from Midtown earlier tonight um, and I saw uh, some people dressed up as I'm forgetting the names of the sisters from that movie, but uh, dressed up as the as the witch sisters from that. I can't believe I'm forgetting. I watched this movie like a week and a half ago. I can't even remember. Bodes well for it. Uh, the Sanderson sisters. That's what it is. The Sanderson sisters. That's people dressed up as uh, I believe it's Winifred. Uh, I think that's Betty Midler's character. She's the lead. Anyway, sorry. What movie are we talking about today? Hocus Pocus 2? Is that what we're talking about? Tar. <laughs> tar. Oh, right. Yes. That's a fun mentioned. movie to say of the year. Yeah. Yeah. It is Tar. Todd Field's first film since 16 years ago, 2006's Little Children. Scott, you recently watched this movie as well, so I'm sure you can get some context for his, <laughs> his directorial filmography. Uh, but anyway, Tar stars Kate Blanchett in the titular role of Lydia Tar. Uh, who is one of the greatest living composer conductors and the first female chief conductor of the fictional Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. The film begins with Tar being interviewed ahead of her upcoming completion of all of Mahler's symphonies, all 10 of them, concluding with Mahler's fifth and the one most important to her, apparently. Tar doesn't manage this alone, however. She's deeply dependent on her highly attentive assistant, Francesca, played by Noemi Merlant, and her ailing wife and concertmaster Sharon, played by Nina Haas. As preparations begin for the sym for Symphony Number no. Five, it quickly becomes clear that Taro's world is not at all simple. A number of things, including she needs to replace an aging and underperforming member of the orchestra. She must balance her own perspective as a conductor with a new age, more liberal perspective on art. She's threatened by a former protege who insinuates grave misuses of Tar's powerful position in the field of composing and conducting. And she has to contend with her own urges of infidelity and favoritism with a new member of the Berlin Philharmonic. Tar is a film with quite a bit on its mind, and many critics are raving both about Blanchett's performance as a true tour de force, but also how the film gives no simple answers in the face of transcendent tour artists who are both mesmerizing in their creative power and maybe also terrifying in their abuse of their positions. Scott, do you agree? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I alluded to it there in the, the intro. I know you've had a little bit of a different experience, obviously, because you watched a lot of movies at the New York Film Festival, right? So you've gotten sure. a head start on a lot of the award season and all those types of movies. But mm -hmm. um, I haven't had that. And, you know, we've had to endure a lot uh, these past couple months, it feels like, uh, you know, with some of the big prestige movies that we were looking forward to and everything coming mm -hmm. out. But not only not living up to the hype, but being quite awful um, in the case of, you know, Don't Worry Darling and Amsterdam, um, obviously being the two big culprits there. Um, so, uh, you know, to, to say I needed to be brought back to reality was probably an understatement. Did you and, need to be tarred, uh, Scott? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I got to say, within like a few minutes, I mean, really yeah. from the opening scene, but really from there's an unbelievable scene that happens early in this movie at Juilliard. Um, yeah. That I was just sitting there like, 
thank you, God, I was starving and now I am being fed. Um, because <laughs> we eaten out here. Yeah, th this is a legitimate movie for adults, for real people. And it does not dumb down its material. It does not condescend. It uh, does not make a big deal about itself, right? About how, quote unquote, important it is. It is a smart film for people who want to put the time and energy into appreciating something that is tackling one of the most important topics or one of the most provocative topics at the very least that, um, you know, is permeating our culture today. And it's sort of, Pencil and is juxtaposed yeah. this fall with, you know, a based on a true story, you know, type film of a real sure. life scandal that is not that, I mean, it's not the same, obviously, not but well it is, known, but yeah, very well known yeah uh yeah, yeah. harvey weinstein you know, that, that obscure that obscure well thing. no i thought okay so i thought you were talking about the composer because there is a there's an actual composer oh, who yeah. some people have drawn or conductor i don't know one of the two drawn par a lot of parallels with uh lydia tar's story to like an actual real composer so i didn't i didn't realize you were talking about harvey weinstein oh i was talking that. about the whole like important the important the like self not self-important but like the sure. important film about a very provocative topic and current culture sure. anyway sorry continue yeah and you know there were so many ways that it could have gone wrong right like you know you have todd field who's this middle-aged white dude right taking sure. on this topic and you have a female protagonist right perhaps not what you would necessarily expect from um, a movie about this topic again not a lot yeah of, cer certainly not the most stereotypical uh, right portrayal. a lot of the big yeah. culprits have been um men you know yeah. we mentioned harvey weinstein i will say um if you should go read Charles Romesco's review, I forget what website he wrote it for, but um, he made the the point. I think that it, if it was a man, we would have instantly just sort of associated all of our negative feelings about men doing these things with the person, and it would have been a much more black and white film. And by making it a woman, um, we're forced to actually sort of pay more attention to what is going on and understand the complexity of the situation more, which I thought was a good point and um, really um, illustrates how Todd Field is able to pull this off. Um, but again, there were so many ways it could have gone wrong and it is, it just, it goes so right every single way. I mean, I, this movie is almost two hours and 40 minutes. I looked at my watch once with like 15 minutes left and I was actually sad that there were only 15 minutes left because I just wanted to keep watching this movie. It is mesmerizing. Um, I feel like nobody in my theater like moved while we were watching it. Um, yeah. it, 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 it just sucks you in. And totally. obviously Kate Blanche's performance is a huge reason for that. Um, I mean, she is in God mode here in this movie. I mean, truly this, I know it's, it's, might sound hyperbolic to say this is this is the work of her career when you're talking about somebody who has won multiple oscars and is already considered to be one of the most you know decorated and um talented actresses of her generation but um it does feel that way um to mention another review adam Naiman also mentioned in his review that kate blanchett herself has actually had some comments speaking out in favor of um Woody Allen and Roman Polanski in the past. Um, and that that maybe creates some interesting parallels here too, obviously with people, um, people who are very famously canceled for the stuff that they did outside of their 
art. Um, but Scott, really the best thing about the movie is like you were kind of saying in the lead up that it does not try to answer these questions, right? It, it does not posit that there is some sort of easy solution to this problem. And I think that's so refreshing, right? Again, in an age when it feels like so many of these quote unquote adult movies are trying to slam a particular thing down your throat, a particular mm-hmm. ideology, a particular, um, you know, whatever oh, the look how bad wants you to Which believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, oversimplifying things, obviously making it very black and white. Yeah. Not every issue is like that, Scott. Cancel culture art the art from the artist we even talked about it a little bit you know just recently scott with david o russell right and obviously it didn't we didn't really have to reckon with very much there because his the movie sucked right the um, art and the artist is, both bad in that situation yeah it is a relevant topic yeah. um and it's really refreshing so it's really refreshing to see a movie that doesn't try to suggest that um there is a right or wrong answer necessarily and you know some people may look at that and say well this movie just you know it shrugs it just it doesn't offer any any real solutions um it's in the end it's just like well yeah this is a thing that exists yeah. but, but, but it's I almost think, by, by shrugging almost almost presents a sort of count not countercultural yeah, but like exactly something that what I was gonna say. yeah something like that direction for sure yeah I, it it just at the very least it affirms that these issues can be gray and that you are not a bad person necessarily for feeling ambivalent or for feeling uh what's the word i'm looking for for, for being conflicted. torn about conflicted. yeah conflicted that's the word yeah. i'm looking for thank you um conflicted about you know again i just went through a very similar thing this year with my favorite band right very recently arcade fire the lead singer win butler a lot of accusations have come out about him and i have had to struggle with what is my relationship to their music gonna be um you know believing these accusations as i do that were made against Wynn butler so we're constantly hearing about this stuff um and this movie just explores these issues in such an intelligent way um and in a way that you know again some people might say it doesn't offer any any solutions again it just says that this is a thing that exists but I've been thinking about this movie nonstop since I saw it. I don't think I'm going to stop stop thinking about it um, for a long time, probably. Um, I would definitely want to watch it again, despite the length. Yeah. Um, and I felt the same way coming think, out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately that's the test right there. Did the movie accomplish something? Well, yes. Like, I'm still thinking about this movie. And it seems like I am not alone in that, right? A lot of people are talking about this movie. This movie, a lot of critics are talking about it, and not just talking about it as "is it good, is it bad," but like really diving into what is this? What are the topics in this movie? What do we think that Todd Field is trying to say? Do we agree with his hypothesis? You know, really diving deep on the minutia of what he's doing because he is such a meticulous filmmaker and. I thought I keep referencing reviews here, but I actually not to toot my own horn, but I had this the same thought, which I later read in David Ehrlich's review, which is this feels like a movie that it took 16 years to make. And yet it only could have been made in the last few years. Right. Because of the topics that it explores. Um, mm-hmm. So that speaks to Todd Field, right, that he's able to create something that's so meticulous and well constructed um, in a narrower window than it may seem. So I can't recommend this movie enough, Scott. I think there are very few, if any, flaws. Like, I couldn't stop watching it. 
Um, and I think it has been a long time since we have got a movie that navigates such provocative and important issues with such nuance and intelligence and skill. Um, it's it's the type of you know movie that I've been craving. It feels like for quite a while now. It it fully delivers. Yeah, uh, I I mean I feel similarly. I think I I don't I don't even remember at this point how much I said on the podcast when I talked about this after my first week at the New York Film Festival. But it was my favorite film of the festival. I watched this at I saw this like I think I mentioned at the start of the podcast just a little bit under a month ago. We're recording on Halloween. I saw this in the first week of October. And I won't say that I've been thinking nonstop about it because there were so many movies at the festival that I think really had captured my attention to it. It was really hard to stay focused on one movie or another. But this is certainly one of the films out of the festival that with maybe like After Sun, maybe maybe being the other one that has just sort of persistently stuck with me since then. Armageddon Time 2 to a couple different extents. And... You, you know, you mentioned that scene at Juilliard, but you also said that you were sort of captivated from the beginning. I mean, I think from the opening scene with yeah. her New Yorker interview with, is it Adam, Adam, Adam Gobnik? Gobnik, yeah. Gobnik, yeah. Uh, real life Adam Gobnik. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, j- just from that, I mean, it's got literally five minutes in the movie. I was like, this film is just like, this performance is just on another level. Um, it, it's it's one of those things you, you kind of mentioned because we, we sort of like survived a long summer of frankly, mostly mediocre movies with, uh, with some very notable exceptions to be fair. Yeah. Um, but again, even those movies were like the, you know, it was, it was Nope. It was, it was Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. yeah exactly. It was the big blockbuster. Not, yeah. not that Nope doesn't have things on its mind, but again, it's still, it's aiming for something a little bit different than this. It, it is. And I, and I really liked a lot of the performances in Nope, but as good as Daniel Kluya is in everything he does, um, his performance in Nope doesn't it doesn't touch what Kate Blanchett is doing in Tar. Um, frankly, I mean, frankly, I just I, I I think that it's one of those things where you sit down, you start watching the performance, and you know I think it's fair. I can I can see how some people might not be into this movie. We can talk about what I think what I think of that later later on, maybe. But but like I, I think it's just one of those sort of like undeniable performances. The fact that she's just being interviewed on a stage and. All of a sudden, I just feel like I'm totally transported. Um, I, ironically, I was transported across the street from Lincoln from Lincoln Center, which is where uh, half this movie is shot at Juilliard. Not half; it's less than that. But like several key scenes are shot at Juilliard, and it's like literally you can see like the facade of out out the window of like you know the Lincoln Square where I saw where I saw this film, which is always cool to see. Um, but it's just it's just another it's just a completely different kind of performance that I think you get from Blanchett here. I, you know, after the film, Todd Field was talking about how he wrote he wrote this film for Kate Blanchett, this character, Lydia Tarr, for Kate Blanchett to play. And that if she had refused to play it, then never would have made the movie. Um, and that's the, to, to your point about meticulous director. Like, you know, it's it's almost like maniacal. The fact that like he's writing a movie for a specific person with with lots of ideas that don't necessarily have to relate to the person that he's writing the script for. But just that sort of meticulous maniacal nature of his filmmaking means that when he's writing this film, if he's writing with someone in mind and that person doesn't want to participate in the film, then the film's not getting made. And that's probably one of the reasons why he hasn't made a movie in 16 years uh, before this. So obviously the pandemic is a function of that as well, but the pandemic wasn't happening until 2020. You know, there's still 14 years before that uh, when, when he hadn't completed a film. So overall I was 
immediately swept away by by the movie. I saw a review um, from someone I follow on Letterboxd yesterday uh, giving a very bad rating to this movie and saying that it's not very original. Like the the premise of the film is that a great artist who's a bad person is still a bad person, and that's not very you know new or creative and kind of obvious. And and I do to be fair, I understand what they're saying, but I don't think that anyone reviewing the movie is saying, "Oh wow, what groundbreaking, um, like what groundbreaking theme of of art, like a, an incredible artist is a bad person." Um, and that's like not what people are talking about in the movie. And I think that to I think this this describes a lot of what you were saying about the film. It's not the fact that Lydia Tarr abuses her power. That's like not what the film is about. The film is yeah. about the con the context around it. Um, not necessarily how she became not 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 necessarily how she came to a position of power or how she abused it, but what is the what are the circumstances under which she chooses to to abuse her power, what enables her, um, things like that. And I and I think it has I, I think it has a lot to say. And this is one of the reasons why I really want to rewatch this movie. I was I was disappointed I wasn't able to rewatch it before we recorded. But I think it has a lot to say about the people around her who enable her, who then sort of turn on her um, towards towards the end of the movie. Rightfully so. No, I mean, I think that that they're very right, maybe to turn on her. But I think that it is very interested in, I think, how other people are complicit in the abuse. Um, again, maybe not so original, but I think it, it is that is more of the flavor of what the film is interested in. Less just the less just showing you a really you know evil person, per se. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I, I just think it's a little reductive to say sure. to use words like good or bad, you know, to describe Lydia Tarr or even anything of what this movie is trying to do. Because, again, I, I think that's oversimplifying the a lot of the nuance that is there. I mean, I think you could certainly again, this movie is a lot about interpretation. Right. And I think a lot of what the audience, what people are saying about it is going to suggest more about the audience the the specific person is giving their opinion more yeah. so than it does what the film uh, and i and i think that's great um josh larson for example he wrote at the end of his review that he didn't exactly like the ending because he thought it was a little bit of a cynical um smug way to end a movie that really wants to dive deep into this character and that it was just a little bit of a smug way to do that and I was sitting there like, well, yes, but I actually think that's kind of that can also be the point, right? Like that's your interpretation of it is, hey, wait a minute. Isn't this kind of unfair, ungenerous what has happened here to this person at the end of the movie? Isn't this seem a little trite? Um, well, yeah, like that could be just what actually happens, right? Um at not necessarily a poor choice that the movie has made. So I, I think not that the movie is is above criticism, but I think some of the some of these critiques maybe are kind of reading into what a specific person how they read it and maybe what they wanted out of the film, um, as opposed to what the film is actually interested in doing. But yeah, I mean, you know, to your point, yes, Lydia Tarr does some bad things. We don't exactly know the extent or depth of the bad things that she does. But we know they're quite bad. We we do. Yeah. Um, but the movie never actually tells us what 
it is right. I mean, there there's heavy implications, but we never get like a big scene where it all comes out. She never admits anything. We never know exactly what went on, how many of the the accusations that are being lobbed at her are valid. Um, you know, just what all of the details are. And again, to Todd Field's credit, there are times when you could he he presents one of these things and it's like, oh, well, one of these situations and it's like, well, here, yes, you can interpret this in the worst possible way, right? Which is that, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, you know, she has sexually manipulated this Krista person and also possibly multiple other people. Um, or there are other ways that you can interpret it too. I mean, I, I'm thinking specifically about, I guess, the the Russian cellist, Olga. right? Who Olga, who is joining the orchestra, and you know, it ends up that Lydia wants to put on the Elgar concerto that Olga told her that she played when she was a teenager, and she, you know, we get this scene of her watching the video of. Yeah. Um, Olga and it's like oh well she actually seems you know transported by the music so her decision right to to do the concerto is it because she wants to manipulate Olga just like she's manipulated all these other people or is she actually just really taken with the music and the way that Olga plays it or not again it it is open to interpretation and that is just like again it's nuance and there's just not enough movies that that have that and so i appreciate that there are a few moments like that i think where even the juilliard scene right me there there is me listening to the her the points that she is making and largely agreeing with a lot of the things that she's saying but also you know the scene ends basically with the student walking out and saying you know calling her some very crude names and i was like yeah you know what i kind of agree with a lot of what lydia is saying but also i agree with the student that she is this you know the names yeah. that that he called her right because um the manner in which she presents the arguments the sort of total well, disregard. it's so condescending and yeah 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 the, t the total disregard uh for what she has for for this guy's the position that this guy has taken yeah this person has taken um is you know not the right way to go about it and so again that you're never you're never you never come away from a scene just feeling one way when this video eventually resurfaces later it's been like chopped and screwed and hacked to bits right basically until taken out of context yeah it yeah it ends up being presented in like a TikTok. i mean not that the reality was great, again, like we're saying, but it it ends up being presented in it a obfuscates the point. far more unfair way. Um, and it, it it just, it makes you question, again, your natural instinct to be like, well, she's getting what she deserves now, right? Because she was kind of horrible to this guy. Um, because it's like, well, wait a minute, are we really going about this the right way? Yeah, uh, I do. I think that your point earlier to the notion of how you read the movie tells you a lot about maybe how you read life and situation what in what you're maybe 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 what your biases are mm -hmm. when you are presented with situations like these and that and I, I guess to underline that point that is like really powerful filmmaking not many filmmakers can effectively sort of paint a mirror um, onto their film and again how you interpret it maybe says 
not necessarily more about you than it does about the film, but certainly says something about you. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. I guess to, to talk about other aspects of the movie before we dive in a little bit deeper um, in the score bumps. I mean, th this Hil Hildur Gunnadotter doing Who the score name here. dropped as well in the movie, which was kind of fun. Yeah, she was um, there. There's definitely some very funny meta elements of the of the of the film. Um, but yeah, yeah, a great score. Um, in addition to all of the sort of diegetic uh, concert uh, uh, classical music that is all performed in camera. Um, that is what diegetic means, I guess. Um, so yeah, I think that I, I, when I, when I, when they were talking about that after I saw the film, I was like, one, I think you can really tell that it's all shot in camera and two, that's cool. <laughs> like, that's really cool yeah. that they did that. Um, and I think the the film certainly benefits from it. It definitely keeps you immersed. We're talking about that immersion that Kate Blanchett sort of transports you with and sort of fix, you're able to sort of fixate on her and you're never sort of taken out of it by some sort of edited together, you know, orchestral scene um, in, in the movie. So a plus for that. And yeah, I'm I was at, I was like listening to the credits uh, waiting for the Q&A to start. And it's just like this the credit song. is It's good. I don't know. I wasn't actually wasn't a huge fan of the credit song. I like the music throughout the film, but uh, sure. I I didn't say for the whole thing. But I, when the credits hit, I was like, this seems a little like off. Well, it's it, um, well, the reason is that it's 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 to tie in with the last scene when she's like she's like conducting sure, yeah, the yeah. Monster Hunter video yeah, game yeah. score. <laughs> um, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's all good. Any thoughts on on the music before we move on? No, yeah, it, it was very good, and uh, I mean, I you know the the actual classical music used as well. Um, I told you today I was listening to Elgar's uh, yeah. cello concerto at work today, um, based after after seeing the film. So um, that was yeah, I I appreciated it, and you know, again, a cool decision to have a female composer, obviously, because I think this movie does want to explore gender stuff too, to some extent. Um, yeah, because. Well, there's a lot about Lydia Tarr. You know, we already talked about sort of the decision to have a female as the protagonist, but also her being almost masculine in a lot of the ways that she presents herself, right? Sort of the way she dresses. She sure. um, she she says there's a scene where she goes to her daughter's school and she, mm -hmm. she walks up to this bully girl who's obviously been bullying the, his daughter and says, I'm her father, right? She says, I'm... Petra's father um yeah and you know there there are some other she, she's always like mentioning men as her influences right she's mentioning Leonard Mahler. Bernstein she's mentioning Gustav Mahler yeah. yeah um so um there there's almost a sense of she has kind of had to to make herself like this in order to reach the position of you know such power and acclaim that she has mm -hmm. because in, at least in her era, she could not have done that as a woman. Um, yeah. But then she's also kind of having to reckon with that that's not really the the way the tide is turning anymore, right? That um, somebody like Olga is talking about being very influenced by female composers, right? And, and that is what got her into music in the first place. Um, and you have you know, Francesca, um, 
Naomi Merlant's character who wants to be part of the orchestra as well. It's a big, you know, plot point that she sort of ends up um, in competition with other people, um, including a man. So, um, you know, it's there's a lot going on there. Definitely. I mean, I think we can just keep talking about the tar of it all. We've already talked about Kate Blanchett's performance, but I think we can maybe frame the conversation about her around some of the some of the key things going on in her life. Like you've, t- you've we've talked about the fact that she's performing, you know, this can this this symphony that she's sort of building up towards this sort of climactic point in her career. As much as you know, she hasn't already had several of those climaxes. I mean, she's achieved so much. Um, and it's revealed pretty quickly in that New Yorker interview how much she has achieved. But there's other elements of her life. She has, of course, her her marriage to Sharon, which is complicated to say the least. She has all these relationships and squiggly lines, I think, with other women in the field that she's in. I think Krista is the most obvious one to talk about here because of the accusations that are sort of being lobbed early on in the film about you know Lydia's conduct um, in relation to her but then there's also the relationship with <clears throat> Francesca and I think it's a bit ambiguous exactly what their relationship is I think there's lots of implications around what their relationship may or may not be but um, that's something I think is one of the actually one of the most interesting parts of the movie to me yeah definitely. Um, and, and has stuck with me the most and then the third, of course, is maybe the most straightforward of them is just because you see because you see it so much on screen. And that is the one with Olga, um, who is the new cellist that is added to um, added to the orchestra. So, Scott, I, I, we've talked a lot about sort of like the ability for Kate Blanchett to hold the eye and transport and whatnot. But I do think so much of the power of the performance comes from her ability to sort of weave and navigate through all these other like really complex relationships. I mean, there's also even the relationship between her and uh, Mark Strong's character. The I'm forgetting his name. Elliot Kaplan, Elliot. I believe. Yeah. Elliot uh, Kaplan. Um, yeah. He's like an investment banker and like wannabe conductor. Seems like she he's like a, the money man. Sucking up, sucking up to her. Yeah, yeah trying to get. So there's all these different relationships. Um, and I feel like as, as magnanimous as the performance is, in like the solitary nature of there's also a lot of magnanimity in the in the interactions with others and i wonder what your thoughts are about that yeah i mean just to keep beating the dead horse like there's so much sort of ambiguity slash nuance in all of these relationships and yeah i think francesca is like a great example too i also thought that that was um a fascinating thread in the movie because again you don't know what exactly is going on here right you could certainly conclude based on some of the statements that are made that they've had some sort of relationship similar to what maybe she had with Krista, right? There's, there's a brief comment made about like, Oh, it was so different back then with the three of us or whatever, talking about her, Lydia and Krista. Right. And it's also heavily implied by Sebastian. Um, who is the person being pushed out of right in that scene in his office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That that's one that you take with a grain of salt. Like he he clearly doesn't know and he's just making an assumption and lobbying an accusation. But yeah, so you can seem far fetched again that it's a totally fair interpretation um, to to read it that way. On the other hand, you know, Francesca is this person that wants to be in the orchestra. Right. And yeah 
is evidently willing to be Lydia Sars assistant, right? Just because she thinks it will get her to that position. Because, and, because it you know, normally would get her to that. Position. Yeah. And there's a scene where she like, after Krista has died and she's learned about it and she comes over and she's like, I need someone to hold me. And Lydia's like, well, that's not really what this is for. That's not really what I'm here for or whatever. So yeah. uh, again, ambiguous, right? She, here's a moment where you might expect that, you know, we're going to get the reveal like the of what their relationship like actually is. Yeah. And she kind of rejects that. Right. So maybe, maybe we are being unfair to her. Maybe, you know, this is, um, Francesca just really, really idolizes her and, um, is make sort of making more out of their relationship than is actually there. Right. And is, you know, following in her footsteps so that she can try to get this role. And the second that she doesn't get that role, right. The second that she gets passed over, you know, she nukes the whole thing, right. She ends up being sort of the, the impetus that starts everything into motion. Um, or at, again, at least that's implied that she sort of possibly spreads these emails and everything that um, that Lydia sent, had sent to Krista and asked her to delete, but she didn't actually delete. Yeah, I would um, say she spreads them, but I mean, there is this lawsuit going on where it sounds yeah. like is that Krista's parents are suing Lydia, Lydia and the their lawyers are are demanding any emails correspondence that related to to them and, and she had well, these emails yeah so well that's what i was going to say as I, I don't i don't know exactly how to interpret that scene because it does kind of cut off um before like we get totally what's going on i took it as that they had gotten the emails right and basically what it showed what we were about to see was them actually pulling out the emails and you know kind of exposing her there in the deposition but then yeah Lydia didn't want to hear that, right? So we don't end up seeing it in the movie. Um, sure. But that was kind of how I interpreted that. But anyway, Francesca yeah. obviously ends up playing some sort of role in the downfall that happens to Lydia. Definitely, um, yeah. And it's such an interesting decision that she's making because she's she's trying to ward off, you know, these sort of accusations from within to, but at the same time, by warding off those accusations, i.e. not giving Francesca the position, Sebastian's position within the orchestra, she sort of galvanizes these attacks from, you know, without, from outside. And it's sort of this, you know, unstoppable force, immovable object, or lose-lose Sophie's choice kind of position that she finds herself in when, you know, sort, sort of the, the things that she's wrought. I, I think that your point around the ambiguity of, of their past relationship you know, you say maybe it's her, maybe it's Francesca making more out of it on the other side of that coin, which I think is exactly the point you're making. I don't think you're not saying this. It's just, you know, it that is like the sort of emotionally manipulative element of sure. of their relationship where, you know, she gives this sort of false, you know, almost sort of like superficial um, emotional hook into the individual. Um, but when that other person needs that, she doesn't get that like targets that. And in return, you get this sort of, you know, and you, you could say the same thing about her relationship with her wife, right. With Nina Haas's character. Sure. Um, Absolutely. Which, and I mean, and, and this is basically what, how the whole thing, you know, climaxes is with Nina Haas's character, Sharon, basically saying, 
um, you know, the only sort of real relationship that you have had is the one that you have with your daughter, right? Like that's really the only one because you She's can't really father. put on a performance for her um, like you're putting on with everyone else. Yeah. Uh, also, I just want to say credit to Todd Field um, for casting both of these actresses because, you know, no Noemi Merlant and Nina Haas are primarily known for doing films in their home countries. Um, but they're both superb, um, superb actresses. I mean, Nina Haas, if you know, she's done a lot of German films. If you've never seen Phoenix, it's an absolutely incredible movie. She is an absolutely incredible performance in it. Um She's been in a lot of U.S. TV shows, though. Okay, yeah. Homeland, um, Jack Ryan. Okay, I didn't realize that. But yeah. um, and then Noemi Merlot. Obviously, we know her from Portrait of Lady on Fire. I really liked her in Paris Thirteenth District, which came out earlier this year, the Jacques Odiard movie. Um, you know, so so I credit him for going out and sort of picking them. Um, and bringing them into this big American movie where they're going to get more eyes, you would think. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, as, it's very interesting part. casting. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I, I feel like there's so many people you could have just plucked off of maybe like the Hollywood carousel and, mm -hmm. and placed into this movie, but went for something a little bit different. I mean, no, I don't think anyone would question the, um, you know, the pedigree of either of these people in there home countries to your point um but not necessarily easy to cast them um at least not as easily as just taking someone who has like a u.s agent and you know universal or focus or whoever normally works with um anyway yeah 100 percent agree the casting is really great in this and the point about nina i think that that is the other really interesting relationship to me or, or most interesting relationship to me besides francesca is is the one with her wife who and I think this goes back He's to also the point. a musician, right? Yeah. yeah, who is a musician? There's clearly um, an affinity uh, th there for sure. All of the all of the women that that Lydia is interested in. She's got a type. She has a type. Um, it's a type that she feels comfortable with. I'd imagine it also feeds into this power dynamic. It's like she wants to be around people who know who she is, who appreciate her power, um, who respect her in a yeah. way that you know, an, maybe an average person who's less familiar with the music field, the composing field, the conducting field wouldn't be able to appreciate in the same way. I think that's something that's really important to her. I think it's really clear that it's important to her to be respected and to be um, sort of adored in that way. And I think the relationship with Sharon is really interesting. And going back to the point I was making around the complicit, sort of like the complicitness of people around her. I think Francesca is one of them. And I think Sharon is the other one. Sharon knows at absolutely in my opinion knows everything that's going on around around there including the relationships she's, she's having with these younger women um allegedly like we, however you read it there's Isn't a lot it? of great like facial reaction moments in this movie too and you can yeah. see it with sharon in the ways that lydia is interacting with olga right in front of the whole orchestra right like there's you know at least one scene in particular where you know she's getting really close to Olga and like in the yeah. background, we just see Sharon sitting there like, you know, reacting and, yeah. and everything. There, there's a lot, a lot of good face acting in the movie. Again, no, no, Merlant also when it's revealed to her that she is not going to get the oh, yeah. open spot. Supreme, the Supreme orchestra. facial reaction. Yeah. That, that was strong as well. Yeah. I, I just, and, and these facial reactions, not, not only are they very effective, but I also think that they really are to the point, like, 
and, and to the point that I'm making, like they know who Lydia is. They know what she's doing. They know what she's capable of. And they don't do anything about it until it doesn't benefit until Lydia can't benefit them anymore. Yeah. And under her spell still. I mean, under her spell, but beyond that, like it's not like selfishly beneficial. Like if Francesca outs this person who's gonna get her a spot in like a major philharmonic orchestra. She'll never get the spot, yeah. Exactly. Like, like she's never going to be able to get a spot in that world. And if Sharon outs her wife, who's who like she's the like the second, like the sort of second in command for at this major orchestra, like what? Like maybe she survives and, that, but it's like not a good look. Yeah, and, and again, talking about the video getting released and Francesca possibly having yeah. a role in like the whole lawsuit emails, and everything. Yeah, yeah. When she when she releases the information, right, is not it's she's not do, necessarily doing it because it's the right thing to do, right? It's because she wants revenge, presumably. She wants retribution against Lydia because it all comes about right after. Yeah, she you know, is doesn't get the is spot. dropped from the orchestra, doesn't get the spot. Um, yeah, and to be so, clear, she's not she's not fired. She just doesn't get the spot. For yeah, yeah. And yeah. then she just quits. And then she quits. Um, and so there's some interesting commentary there, maybe about. You know, the the opportunities that people take to expose these people for, sure. um, you know, so, quote unquote, cancelable actions behaviors mm -hmm. um why do these things come about at the particular time when they do um and i think the movie has some thoughts about that which are interesting yeah so i i, I again i don't really think that the film is trying to argue with anyone that yeah these are bad things that lydia tar is doing and and likely has done there is some there is there is room for nuance and all those things certainly but i, I don't even think it's it's trying to say Oh, this is bad, but wait. This is just saying this is bad. And isn't it interesting how there's so much more stuff going on around it that mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the reason it happens, but is certainly related to the things that are happening. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Nina. We've talked, or sorry, <laughs> Nina, Sharon. We've talked a lot about Francesca. Olga is sort of like, I don't want to say the other side of the coin necessarily, but someone who doesn't yet know Lydia. Um, who is sort of exposed to her and like a I mean she she is the stand-in for like this is the type of relationship that Lydia has tried to have with lots of people over time um, again maybe there's variations that over time but she's the person who's being groomed like she's being favors are being she's being shouted with favors maybe it also makes sense to to do this like you said this sort of uh, this concerto this cello concerto because she's really good at it in short notice and there's not a lot of time to practice it and perfect it whatever like maybe it does make sense to an extent but there is also a sort of Sharon with favors grooming element to it. It can be both things. I think this is the, the point that you're making earlier. And it cannot help but resemble the past things that she is accused of doing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it becomes clear the, the reason that, that pushes towards like, oh, like there are other motivations for doing this is is when you sort of see like the additional lengths that Lydia goes to like returning the stuffed animal and all these other things that are happening like she's going uncharacteristically for someone in that situation out of her way to to do things for and for olga and you know the whole stuffed animal scene right it ends up with her tripping and and cracking her head on the stairs yeah yeah um because she's following but instead of saying oh yeah i, I tripped and cracked my head while i was 
you know, trying to bring Olga's stuffed animal back to her. Yeah. She lies, says that she was attacked. Right. And it's like, why would you lie about that unless you felt like you needed to you were doing something, something wrong? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So th that's where I I see the the read of like, oh, this is bad, like great artist, bad person, still a bad person read of it. But it just feels like. There's there aren't I can't think of a movie that has that has presented that situation in the way that this film has and providing these sort of circumstances and focusing even on the circumstances by which, you know, this person is sort of enabled over a long period of time to groom and traumatize other people, not to excuse the behavior, but to present interesting sort of accoutrements to the situation, if you will. And that's what I just find the most interesting. And, and again, going back to the sort of the, the Kate Blanchett of it all, like she's able to, you know, have those sort of very harrowing, solitary moments where she's like waking up in the middle of the night or hearing voices when she's running in the woods or you know whatever 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 like she's like she's sort of unraveling on screen psychologically at the same time um as sort of all these like sort of external threats sort of converge on her but she's also able to still hold the screen you know when she's like when she's on like when she's talking with nina haas or when she's talking with noemi merlin or you know et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I find that to sort of be the most impressive element and when she's conducting as well it's oh, like gosh yeah again because because we're talking about this art versus artist thing yeah the art really needs to come alive right for us to yeah. understand you know why this person is is the person that we hear in this for five minutes at the beginning of the movie which is just you know her reading the new yorker guy reading her wikipedia page basically um and we see it right when she, you know, completely transforms when she is up there conducting and you can see that it's not just, you know, yeah. uh, business. That music is getting performed. It's not just work for her. This is like yeah. something that she feels deep inside of her. And we haven't really talked about this, but, go for it. Um, you know, towards the end of the movie, we get sort of an even bigger reveal, right? Like she yeah. goes back to what I guess is supposed to be like her childhood, her childhood. home. Yeah, that's how yeah. I read it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, her brother who was there. Um, and we find out that her name is Linda, right? Her, her name isn't even Lydia. And that the accent mark over Tar, whatever, probably is is also an embellishment, right? That's probably not a part of her actual name. Um, but, you know, she has been pretending for her entire career it seems to in order to get her to this position she has had to pretend um and again it, it's a moment where it forces us to into having some slight empathy for her because we don't know what her situation was right we don't know um you know the the situation which i mean especially her, came from a poor family a yeah to feel family. that she needed to do this but, uh, you know, what may have not started off as something sinister, right, certainly turned that way because she ha she she got power, right? And when you have power, it seems to corrupt, as we have seen established in many, you know, <laughs> films, stories, everything for till the beginning of time. Sure, yeah, it just sort of like sort of feeds your insecurities and you need to like 
you know, reinforce those and reinforce those. And so much about that, just to go back to that point is, is the environment in which all of these fields sort of operate. It's this, it's this sort of dog eat dog, all zero sum game of your gains or other people's losses. You know, you have friends, but they're not really your friends, things like that. There's this environment that's really cutthroat. I mean, just, it is clear that Krista and Francesca have a relationship, but the truth is, is that not both of them can be her, her second in command. Like one of them has to sort of win um, that sort of bake off, so to speak. And Krista doesn't win that. And she falls out of favor and it's, and it's, it, it's indirect because we don't see that happen on screen. Like you pointed out, but it, it is clear how brutal of a process that was. There's still some relationship there between Francesca and her, but it's not the same as it was. And it's, it's something different there. It's very, it's very um, complex and nuanced. And you can sort of see like that vicious cycle, that feedback loop of tar came up this way. She treats like, we don't know to the extent that she may have received similar treatment, of course, when she was younger, but like, it is clear that the environment in which she came up in sort of propagated the system where you're not exactly treating people around you. Well, like you're keeping people at arm's length you're using people to your advantage and and not really too much more. Um, maybe the relationship with Sharon is like the, the weird sort of kind of exception, but kind of not where there clearly was something there once upon a time and they are using each other for their benefits. But it, that sort of whatever that extra part of their relationship that led to getting married, like isn't there anymore. And it's very complex in that way. I, I just think that this film does such a good job laying the groundwork for, again, that sort of entire context of, of how it comes up without ever actually going to be like showing you a, a scene of Lydia Tarr when she was 25 years old or whatever yeah. and being abused by, you know, insert conductor or other, you know what I mean? Like that, that, that's not shown on screen, but I think enough groundwork is laid to say whether it is this or whether it is that there was some sort of treatment that she experienced or observed or whatever it was that taught her that this is the way to do things to, to get to where you, you yeah. know, where she wants to be. Um, and I think that element of the movie is more interesting than her doing bad things. Sure. Which is why I want to go see the to, movie. <laughs> yeah. But before we conclude, I do want to talk about the very ending as well. Um, because I, I like Monster Hunter. Well, I like how it all. Un I actually really loved how it all unfolded there at the end with because it all happened so quickly. Right? Sure. Yeah. Which I, I think, think is montage. is pretty, pretty um, realistic as to, you know, these cancel culture things happen it's like a video comes out and then yeah everyone sees it on twitter and bang, all of a sudden you're, you're in dead. asia yeah <laughs> uh, all of a sudden you're in, in thailand um yeah. and I, even even before she gets there though it's like you know we go from her having this kind of stern conversation with her wife with sharon to yeah. sharon is literally going to the school and taking their daughter right. away yeah. from her yeah um yep and it just it all escalates so quickly to the point that yes now she's in um thailand and also uh, along with that is you know we we all we get the sense like the whole movie was building towards the but when she's going to conduct Mahler's fifth right That's and then it. it it just he just completely withholds it right because we it starts off right and it's like oh epic intro right tracking shot she's coming in from the back or whatever this is going to be it we're going to conclude with like her just do, conducting this brilliant, um, you yeah. know, production. And it's going to be like, 
the final note of wow she was a great artist you know she was a great artist but also you know she was a terrible person and she freaking falls all over the stage starts assaulting elliot on stage yeah doesn't even conduct a single note and then you know it, it all gets even worse so i love how he just he withholds like the big moment that you think you're building towards and turns into uh, something yeah, yeah horrifying so so then yes what happens is we see her preparing to conduct again she's in thailand we don't know exactly what she's going to be conducting there's conversation about like oh the composer's not going to be flown in all this stuff and then she was a last minute comes, replacement for yeah she comes out on stage she begins to conduct this orchestra and we pan through the audience and we see that it's all of these cosplayers basically um and that's it that's the final shot of the movie um and you know hilarious final shot yeah it is i i love it though because i you know my whole thing about this cancel culture i personally think that we have there is room for forgiveness right when it is earned when forgiveness is earned right um we need to, as a society, we need to be willing to forgive these people for their past transgressions if they have truly learned from them and are bettering themselves. With that being said, does that mean we need to return them to the place of prominence that they no. once were, right? Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, yeah. There ha- there still have to be consequences for this type of stuff. Yeah. I look at, you know, a, this is an out there reference, but Morgan Wallen, right, who's a country music artist. Sure. Um video came out several years ago of him using the n-word um he apologized you know he donated some money all of this stuff great he's now like more popular than he's ever been um and well among a crowd of people who don't really care about people using the n-word but yeah i mean sure that that is part of it but again it's there need we need to be able to say i'm glad that you you know are sad about uh, sad about what you did and that you're bettering yourself and whatnot but yeah we're not going to be putting you on stadium tours we're not going to be distributing your albums widely and all this stuff like he's the other end of the spectrum you can't come back from that and i think that this what this final scene again if you think that todd field is offering any sort of answer at all maybe it comes in this final scene right which is that well, Lydia Tarr hasn't been totally, you know, forced out of the world of composing. She can direct. Right? She can com- conduct. She can still. still compose. She can still conduct. But it is going to be in this setting, which Obscurity. is obviously very far beneath what she was doing previously. And it, what most people would say is unbecoming of someone with an EGOT and all of these other, you know, yeah. awards and everything that she has. So... You know, I personally love that as being the place that she ends up in. Again, I don't know that Todd Field is saying necessarily that that's the ideal scenario, but to me, it is. Like to me, it is. It's it's a way that this art can continue to prosper, but not at the expense of propping up inappropriate behavior. I don't know if I have too much more to add in that. Scott, favorite scene or moment from Tar? And real quick, I just want to say on that point, again, sure. there is still, again, talking about the whole gender thing, there is still almost an element of unfairness about it, right? Because you have like Bach, you have Mahler, you have these people who we learn in the movie had oh, their sure, own yeah. personal failings and everything glossed yeah. over, right? Like their their music yeah. is still canonized. Their music is still everything. 
and which is tar's point too in that in that opening scene yeah. like um, y- yes they did bad things but their music and yet you know here is lydia tar a woman right this happens too and it's like all of a sudden now she's in thailand composing video game music like she does have to suffer the consequences of it um and you know, obviously, on the one hand, you could say, well, that just means our society has progressed, right? And we're actually holding people accountable for these things now when we should have been all these years ago. On the other hand, you can also say, is there some sort of double standard here in the way that we, you know, decide what is in the canon and what is not? Um, just another one of the many interesting points in this movie. As far as my favorite scene or moment, it's got to be the Juilliard scene. I think it's possibly the scene of the year so far. Um just listening to the dialogue, which is so like literate and listening to her it's so spout woke. it off. <laughs> yeah. L- listening to, to Kate Blanchett perform that. It, I mean, it is as symphonic as any of the actual music, you know, scenes that we see in the movie. So, I mean, it was, it was brilliant. I literally said, wow, like under my breath when that scene ended, cause it was just the, and the last quote that she has or whatever is like, you have to stand in front of the audience and, and God and obliterate yourself or whatever. And I was just like, holy crap. Like we just watched greatness right there. We just watched Kate Blanchett stand in front of her audience and God and obliterate herself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I will choose a different scene for sake of being different and to talk about a different scene, but that is up there. One of the things that we didn't talk about very much in the film is some of the sort of psychological elements. I know I mentioned it at one point, but there's a lot of that in the film. And I found um, a couple of the scenes where she's running through. I guess it's I guess it's Berlin, I guess is where she lives. Um, the one in the forest in particular, when she hears like a woman screaming I, I, that, that, that scene still sticks with me because when I first saw the movie, I wasn't really quite sure what the point of the scene was. And I've been thinking about it so much since, and it's totally just to sort of further that element of she's waking up in the middle of the night. She's hearing voices. She's hearing sounds. She's hearing a woman down the hallway screaming for help or whatever. It's sort of all speaking of like the sounds and the symphony of it all. Like it's sort of cacophonous. It's almost like discordant. Um, with sort of the more the like fluid, the yeah, the metronome to the more fluid elements of the movie. Then there's this sort of like discordant elements of like breaking the silence with these screams, with these noises, et cetera. And I thought it was really good juxtaposition. And I think the highlight of that for me is, is that scene where she's sort of running to clear her head out, you know, in the fall in Berlin or whatever. And, you know, she's hearing this voice, this screaming woman who she can't quite, she's like running through the woods off the path of whatever, trying to find her and can't find her. Built tension in a good way. Also, her curb stomping the bully at school almost. Like I thought she was about to like <laughs> kill this yeah. kid. Yeah. So good. You look like um, you were about to say something about about that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say transitioning to our scores. I guess oh, it's yeah, funny you mentioned that because actually, I think the one thing which is going to prevent me from giving it a ten out of ten was <laughs> some of the more like dreamlike sequences and stuff. It it really just took me out of it a little bit, and I just. It wasn't. Con- I hear what you're saying, and I'll have to think about that some more. But um, it would to me, it was just like, okay, so she's haunted by what she did. Like, big deal. Like, do we really need to sort of yeah, this? This is you doing the thing that all the people are saying. So what? She's a bad person. Who cares? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, maybe I don't know. But um, she she's haunted by what she did. Like again, I I didn't find that that was a very interesting way to convey that idea. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I mean, With I think these that sort they're... of dream sequences when the rest of the movie is so deeply rooted in like reality and our well, they're not dream sequences culture. though. 
Or at least I'd argue that they're not. Okay. Well, they're, I mean, they're like hallucinations of some sort, aren't they? Like, well, okay. I mean, to the sense that there's the auditory hallucinations, maybe, but she is awake. Like, she's experiencing them. At least that's yeah, how yeah, I read yeah. it, at least. Um, I, I think the thing that makes it interesting anyway. to me is that is that when you put it, the, the thing that makes it not just these sort of like standalone scenes to so that she's sort of going crazy is when you add in like the neighbor or whatever. When you add in that there's this element of sort of woman in like in pain, struggling, screaming for help yeah. next door. And also she's having these, this sort of these, halluc these auditory hallucinations as well. Um, I think that's what makes it more interesting. I think if it were just standalone, it'd be that way. But I think that the film starts to make you question, question in certain moments, like what exactly, like, is she going crazy or is something happening? Yeah. In the yeah. film, Cause there are, there are moments where those screams are real mm -hmm. in her world. So I think that's what makes it maybe more interesting, but to be fair, as we fair transition enough. into scores, I can see your point to a degree. Nine point seven. It's uh, it's <laughs> spectacular. It, it it is spectacular. It really is. It's you know, if not the best film of the year, it's very very high up. If if not the best film of the year, it is the film of the year possible. Just because possibly just because of the topic that it takes on and yeah. the skill with which it navigates that topic. I think it deserves to be one of the most talked about movies, certainly of the year. And fortunately in being one of the most talked about, it's also one of the best. So 9.7. Yeah. The absolute disrespect of a 9.7 on this film. <laughs> oh, just because you didn't like some metronome in the middle of the night, yeah, waking yeah. her up, you're like 9.7. Okay. Um, no, that's cool. I, you know, Scott, honestly, I saw your review of this film and I thought there was a chance that we'd have a new double 10. Um, our first double 10 and since Judas Sorry, and the Black Messiah, point, but yeah. uh, you know, we'll revisit the score in a month if you've rewatched it and see if you reevaluate to a 10. Certainly um, could. It's always possible. Uh, I'm giving it a 10. I think it is. It, it's sort of like the first sort of like dramatic masterpiece of the year um, that I've seen. You know, I think I can't remember if I, I don't think I gave, did we didn't ever actually review cha-cha real smooth on the podcast, I guess. So I didn't ever actually we talked about it on our Sunday. Yeah, we didn't slap a score on that bad boy, I don't think. But uh, that's like up there also with me. But obviously not really a drama. Very different kind of movie. Very different yeah. emotions. This is better. It's a better movie, but they're both fantastic. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I they're just doing different things. And I, and I don't think yeah. I wouldn't disagree with someone saying Tar is a much better film than that. But uh, it just sort of that film just really struck me. Sure. Um, I mean, in, it obviously in a, did. Me. Yeah. yeah, for sure. In a, in a different way. But this this is this was. This is sort of the first true masterpiece of the year for me. I'm excited to revisit it. Um, I think I might manage it this weekend. We'll see. There's still I, I saw so many films at the at the film festival, Scott. But then I look at I look at the release calendar here and what's playing at my local AMC, and I'm like, how did I not see any of these movies at the New York Film yeah. Festival? Why there's still so many more movies I want to see? Um, so I've got a few more to see there. Uh, great cinematography, great great editing great film uh great score it's all great it's a great film really fantastic stuff um don't think i'm gonna go revisit todd field's other movies though well that's disappointing because i mean in the bedroom is certainly very much worth your time okay maybe i'll go watch in the bedroom but look i little children, i got i got so your texts about little children and i i've yeah, decided yeah. No, to in, in the bedroom is very good okay 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 so not off the table yet i will I will go watch in the bedroom 
Um, in the bedroom is the better version of Mystic River. Is that a hot take? I don't know. I don't know the takes. Is that a hot take? Um, I, I mean, they're both Oscar nominated films. I guess Mystic River did win a couple Oscars, but yeah, maybe it's not it's a hot take hot about take. about in the bedroom. It's a hot take. It'd be a hot take about Mystic River. Yeah, yeah, probably slightly. Uh, whatever doesn't matter. I have no opinion about either of those movies, so you can take it out on Scott's Twitter. Exclude me. No need to tag me on this. All right, Scott, that should just about do it for our discussion of Tar. Uh, tune in later this year when we review the other Tar film of the year. That'd be Avatar 2, um, The Way of Water. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be talking about this year's nominations at the Gotham Awards. And I had forgotten about this until I literally just said it, but we'll also be talking about the announcements of a couple uh, 180-plusers coming our way this holiday season. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Got. In just a moment, we'll be talking about this year's nominations at the Gotham Awards. But first, I teased before the break, Scott, that we learned this week that there will be two films this holiday season that have run times that surpass 180 minutes. Um, the first one you sent my way nearly put me on the floor. That Babylon, Damien Chazelle's fourth directorial film, I believe. Over a hundred, like is a hundred and eighty-eight minutes. It's an hour, three hours, eight minutes long. Is that what it yeah. is? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, um, cool. Also, what? <laughs> Who I, let Damien Chazelle a... make his movie three hours and eight minutes long? I mean, I'm not as surprised as you are. I, I feel like we almost had even heard some some rumblings about it being extremely long beforehand. Um, and honestly, if you just watch the trailer, like, yeah, this movie looks massive. I haven't watched massive. the trailer, that's the thing. Well, I guess you haven't, yeah. This movie looks massive, right? It it looks like, you know, a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, that's the movie that it looks the closest to. Not just because it has Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie, although that is a funny coincidence. But um, it looks like a gargantuan production. It's, you know, old Hollywood. Like, it is, it is you know, a lot of money was spent on this film. Um, and I guess it's, well, it had, I guess it's been four years now. So he spent some time gestating on this one. So, I mean, I can't say I'm, I'm totally shocked, um, about it. I mean, look, let, let him cook, right? He hasn't made a bad movie to me, um, sure. yet. And this one I think has the potential to be really, really good. I know like some people talked about reading the script like a long time ago and saying it was an amazing script. Um, which we'll see how it plays out on the screen. But I, I wasn't as surprised as you are, I guess. I mean, I'm just surprised that any film executive will look around, see the current state of the film business, and be like, yeah, yeah, Damien, let her rip on a 190-minute movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but hey, I mean, look, I'm looking... I'm, I was on the floor because I was shocked, not because I was not excited to go watch sure. 188 minutes with, with the gang. Brad, Margo, uh, Gene Smart's in this bad boy, I'm pretty sure. O-Dubs, our favorite, Olivia Wilde, uh, also in it. I think Catherine Waterston, I don't know how much she's in it. She's in this film too, right? Like, there's so many people in this movie. Uh, I'm excited to see it still. all In all 188 minutes of it, 
uh, lowers the chance of a rewatch for, for me probably, but, uh, you know, that's the price of our time, I guess. I don't know. Sure. Uh, the other film in the theme of tar Scott that we heard was over 180 minutes was avatar two, uh, clocking in, I believe one ninety. is that what we heard? A, a thick so, one, yeah. a thick one ninety minute runtime. Scott, you're talking about let Damien cook. I mean, avatar two is all about letting big Jim cook. Uh, three hours, 10 minutes. Not surprised at all. You sent this news to me, Scott. And I was like, yes, let it happen. Let us let us all find the way of water. Yeah, I mean, look, if we have had to go with 13 years without a James Cameron movie, like when he when we finally get one. Yeah, yeah I would like a lot of movie. <laughs> I would like, like some movie, please. Yeah. <laughs> I would like one large order of movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that is James what we Cameron, getting. water film, over three hours. I've seen yeah. this movie before, right? Like, we know what's going to happen. Actual. Yeah. Um, so I'm not surprised by that one. I'm not bothered by that one. It's yeah. I, fir- I firmly expected it. I'm glad we're getting these movies at three hours and not the Eternals or whatever. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh God. Can you imagine the 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 Zhao cut of that bad boy at like three and a half hours? Yeah. No, <laughs> I would I would prefer not to. Yeah. So yeah, an 190 minutes. Uh, I did I did recently learn slash was reminded that apparently Vin Diesel is like plays like some minor role in this movie. Um, that's what I had heard at least. I don't know yeah, if that's true. Is he? Is it actual? human vin diesel or is he doing like motion capture type stuff i'm sure it's mocap i don't know he's got to be part of a family scott so i think the i think the family is the navi so he must be he must this be in the mo-cap. Our fortress yeah this family is our fortress um stay tuned for i guess an avatar fast and furious maybe that's actually what fast 10 is going to be they're sent to pandora <laughs> they're gonna drive i wouldn't roll it out at this point yeah <laughs> Scott, would that would that increase or decrease your level of excitement for the next fast movie? If it was set on I mean, Pandora, you can, you can only increase zero, I guess. So you know, negative excitement in- increase. I mean, we have wild stuff. Um, Avatar two, one hundred ninety minutes. Very excited for this movie, Scott. I know I talked about it on the podcast. Rewatched the first film in IMAX recently. Literally, cannot wait. Most excited I am for a movie for the rest of the year. Yes, and that includes Knives Out 2. I'm I'm currently more highly anticipating Avatar 2 than Knives Out 2. Um, so there you go. I li- I can't wait for both, but them the facts, I guess. I don't know. Also r- learned in the post credits of Avatar when I watched an IMAX because they showed some footage from the new movie. Sigourney Weaver is playing a ch- is mocapping a child <laughs> in the new movie. She is she is Sam Worthington and Zoe Saldana's daughter. I'm pretty sure. Go off. I know. I'm big. Jim is just like Sigourney. You mean so much to me. You must come back and be an avatar too, but not as the same character. Um, This family is our fortress, et cetera, et cetera. All right, Scott. (laughs) I'm gonna turn it over to you for the Gotham Awards. Get me out. Get me out of this 180 pluser hole. I'm just gonna keep talking about Jim Cameron. Sure. Um, yeah, well, it seems like it's all every year. It's the the start of award season when yeah. the Gotham Award nominations get released. These are when always the, the first, the first ones, um, and they are, of course, primarily uh, centered on American independent films. Um, they do have an international feature category, but for the most part, 
um, American indie film. So, you know, perhaps not the best um, predictor of what is to come, but still um, interesting to to parse through as we like to parse through all the nominations for, um, you know, the various awards at this time of year. Scott Tarr, we just spent a long time talking about it. It Not an independent film. But yes, yeah, but it did lead the nominations uh, here. Um, I don't know, remember the exact number that it got, but um, you know, like it's seven. in they all the them. major categories. And actually, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I, both Nina Haas and Noemi Merlant, we were talking about them, both of them getting nominated in the supporting performance category. Um, yeah. So that was kind of cool to see something that I wouldn't expect necessarily to happen, like at the Oscars and stuff, even though, I, you know. Yeah. I would expect, I mean, obviously Kate Blanchett's going to get nominated. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets nominated for Best Picture um, and a couple other awards as well. Do you think that but, either of them will get nominated for a supporting actor? No, yeah. I don't. I don't think so either. Um, Scott, the other, of course, big indie, or the big indie film of the year, not Tar doesn't count, but yeah. Everything Everywhere All at Once, also getting several nominations here um, at... Gotham Awards, you know, it is in the best feature category. Um, acting wise, both uh, Michelle Yeoh and Kihei Kwan were recognized um, for their performances. Again, I, now, now on the on the flip side, I would say that both of them are likely to get Oscar nominations at least at this point. In, you think Kihei Kwan's going Oscar to? System. Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, Interesting. I, I think he has a good chance of getting one at this point in time. We will see how that actually plays out. But do Oscar uh, of the, care about this movie? That's my thing. I think they do. I, I mean, okay. it's it's a it's one of the most talked about movies of the year. Pretty much everyone who's seen it like loves it. Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of goodwill around this movie, and I think A24 has put everything they have behind this movie because nobody else is talking about. After Sun or well, the inspection. That movie also hasn't come out yet, to be fair, but yes. Sure, but I, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I, agree. I don't necessarily I agree. see anything in the cards. But it did get nominated here, Scott, After Sun, that is. Um, it, it does get a nomination in the Best Feature category. Uh, Paul Mescal also getting nominated in Outstanding Lead Performance. And I believe that his co-star, Francesca Corio, was also nominated. Did it get a screenplay? Like- a breakthrough nominated a breakthrough category yes so she was nominated in the breakthrough category screenplay let's see um it did not get nominated screenplay nominees were after yang armageddon time catherine called birdie tar and women talking um tough category so after yeah that is a tough category um Catherine called Birdie, maybe like sort of the odd one out there, but I I didn't mind the movie actually. I did watch it a couple of weeks ago. That but, that great that great barometer for should this film get nominated? Oh, I didn't hate it. <laughs> yeah, well, that, and that's what I was gonna I say again. Alongside after Yang, Armageddon Time, Tar, and Women Talking, it feels a little bit like sure. okay, like what yeah. I was here? just thinking that like when it comes to the more main quote unquote more mainstream awards like the Oscars, I feel like. You would tip it. The only real chance this film has of getting nominated is in the screenplay category. But yeah. if it's not even getting nominated at the Gotham's, then it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough road ahead for it. I think. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, Scott, in the um, best international feature category, which I mentioned, um, you know, uh, we have Decision to Leave, which 
you know, maybe the Oscar favorite, um, you know, from Korea, um, Park Chan Wook's film is in there. The Banshees of Inisherin, you know, again, uh, it it varies via words body, but some a, a lot of words bodies don't freaking count British films as like being international they don't, they features. They don't count English language films as being international. Films. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Gotham Awards obviously do, um, and so that's Martin they're, McDonough's. They're woke. Martin McDonough's film, and that is another one that I think is going to get a lot of Oscar attention. Um, it is. Is, the is that film technically British? Question: Isn't it an Irish film? Is he? Isn't he Irish? Um, or is he Northern Ireland? Yeah. What? What? Uh, yeah. That's the thing. What part of Ireland is he from? I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. it probably is Irish. You're right. So that's a fair correction. Um, yeah. But right for all the McDonough stands are about to come to your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kill you in your sleep. <laughs> but um, Banshees of Inisherin getting in best international feature. Interestingly, Scott. Again, maybe due to the fact that it was in the international feature, as opposed to after Yang being in the regular feature. Um, category although not nominated for best feature but colin farrell getting nominated for after yang and not for the banshees of inner sharon whereas with the oscars and everything it'll it's probably be the Banshees. far more likely that he gets yeah. nominated for banshees than it is for after yang after yang's probably not going to get any attention from the oscars unfortunate which is a tragedy frankly yeah so they're also doing scott at the gotham's the um thing that i think maybe a couple of words bodies are doing now which is where they're not breaking up the performance categories by gender. Mm -hmm. um, with that being said, the supporting performance category still came out to five and five. And then with the lead performance, there were six women and four men. So it didn't make a huge difference, I guess, but just an interesting point to talk about. But only one lead winner instead of two. Yeah, lead, and only one winner. I, I don't know that I really understand the logic behind it, but lead performance, we have Kate Blanchett and Tar, of course. Danielle Deadweiler until somebody yeah. else whose stock I think is rising as far she's, as the Oscars. Are she's concerned. very, she's very good in the movie. Um, Colin Farrell and after Yang, Brendan Fraser in the whale, definitely a lock there for Oscar nom. Uh, Paul Mescal and after son, Tandy way Newton in God's country. Not something that's going to, you know, again, this is where it's, they're kind of showing their indie sensibility a little bit. Same with Aubrey Plaza getting nominated for Emily, the criminal, which I'm thrilled to see because it's one of my favorite performances this year. But also Scott, I literally don't even know anyone who watched God's country. I don't know. Did, did anyone yeah. watch that movie? I saw the trailer and I was like, Hey, this looks pretty good. Never checked it out. Um, I'd still like to see it, but, uh, Taylor Russell for bones and all, um, you know, somebody else getting a lot of buzz and Michelle Yeoh again, gonna be a lock for yep. everything everywhere all at once. Um, supporting performance, um, Jesse Buckley and Women Talking. We talked recently about how she's, you know, riding very high right now as far as her odds for like the Oscars and everything. Mm -hmm. um, Raul Castillo in the inspection, which I know you saw, Scott. Yeah, um, absolutely. Hong Chow in the whale, uh, Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway. Nina Haas and Naomi Merlant for Tar, Kihei Kwan for uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Mark Rylance for Bones and All. Um, maybe an interesting one. I don't know that I heard a lot of people talking about him in that oh, movie. But... People are talking about him. For sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Gabrielle Union in The Inspection um, and Ben Wishaw, uh, who I guess is the token male in, uh, in Women Talking. But uh, he... He also got nominated there. So those are your 10 for best uh, supporting performance. Interesting. I'm intrigued by a couple of those. 
Um, interesting. Uh, so Hong Chow, I will say, I haven't seen The Whale. She's in Showing Up, which is Kelly Reichardt's new movie. Very good in Showing Up. Um, she's having a big year. I think she's also yeah, in the movie really in a one. couple weeks as well. She's having okay. like a real breakthrough year in film. I really want to see Showing Up. I'm not sure when it's coming out. But um, I forgot to close the loop on international feature as well. I wanted to mention that there were two French films that were nominated. So Happening um, was nominated, Audrey Duan's film, and then mm-hmm. um, Saint uh, Omer, which I have been hearing some good things about too, which is kind of a courtroom drama, I believe. Um, I do believe that Happening is the one which has been submitted for the Oscars, but um, don't quote right. on that. Um, yeah, Saint Omer is both, a French legal drama. Yeah, they both got nominated. Actually, and actually, you know, I haven't seen either one of them yet. Um, but you know, there's another French film, Aeneas in Love, which is still one of my favorite films of the year as well, too. So, um, good year for French movies, I guess. And and you know, Petite Maman, but I, I'm sure it was probably nominated last year in this category. You know, it had a weird release date thing. Um, so this is the thing, because I, I, like I don't know what you might be right about happening, but that film came out last year. Yeah, like like Petite Maman. Like which I know is not eligible for Oscars this year because Petit Maman definitely came out last year. It's not eligible. Um, I don't know. I wonder. I'm not sure. I'll need to go look up the French submission. I'm going to go look it up. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, that's kind of uh, it as far as the, the film awards are concerned, Scott. I don't think it's worth diving into the TV stuff um, for the Gothams, but I do just want to mention that Matilda Lawler got recognized um i don't remember if it was breakthrough performance or like lead or or, or supporting performance or whatever it was yeah. but for her role in station 11 which is something that i was crowing about when the emmy nominations came out and she was snubbed so somebody appreciated it and i'm glad to see that so yeah. shout we, out to her we can all agree that gotham's also big fans big fan of Koganata, getting after yang love and pachinko, pachinko love yeah in there which we love to see it. Severance got nominations, although it got nominations at the Emmys too. Um, Saint Omer is their submission. It is okay. Francis' submission. Yeah, I think happening, happening won Caesar Awards last year, which is why I think that it's not. So maybe it submitted it. Maybe that was it. I think last year it was submitted instead of Petit Maman, and that was the conversation. Oh, last year they they submitted Titan. Um, oh right, they did. We've talked about that before. Yeah, there was like so five. Bo- there was like five French movies that could have been. Submitted I guess they year. both got overlooked. Anyway, French yeah. movies. Most of them are good nowadays. Yeah. Um, Celine Chiamas, at least for sure. Can't speak to Alice Diaz and, and and Julia de Cordas, but sure. I can't can't personally speak. I'm I exclusively watch Celine Chiamas French films. The only French films I watch from yeah. now on. <laughs> oh man. But there you go, Scott. Award season. We're underway. Yeah, that's true. Um, so stay tuned for plenty more award season updates. Um, we are entering November. By the time this podcast is released, it will be November. So a lot more coming. The Oscars this year, March again? Scott, when are they? I think they're Sounds early right to, to mid-March. All right, that should do it for episode 209 of Some Like It, Scott. Where can people find you on all the socials? Matt Scarby Dent. And I'm at Shelton 2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized, etc. Don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate it. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. 
And we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Tar. We'll be back next week and later this year, of course, with more Tar. But next week with a review of the black comedy drama, The Banshees of Inishirin, the latest film from the mind of Martin McDonough. We hope you'll join us for our discussion of that film next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. See you down the road.